Well, we are uh, looking this morning at Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 11. After this, we'll probably have two more sermons in the Revelation, and then we're going to move on to something else. Thank you. I've entitled this portion of the, of the book, this uh, passage, this little pericope they call it that we're looking at, I've entitled it, Take a Side. And I think it'll become apparent why as we, as we look at it. Revelation 22, 6 through 11, hear now the word of God. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Then he said to me, see that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He was unjust, let him be unjust still. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would not read, especially the Revelation, these words as a mere novelty. This is something that may or may not apply to us in any given moment, but rather we would recognize that the words in this book reveal to us things of our, of our maker, of our savior, that there is a way to keep the things written in this book, and we do pray that we would be of those people that would seek to keep what is written in this book. So help us, Father, to be both encouraged and challenged, help us to walk away from a message like this, wiser than we walked in, more sanctified. We do pray, Father, that you would continue to form Christ in us, in every aspect of us, thought, word, and deed, just our, our, very, our very passions, Father, may they be sanctified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think it's easy to be um, plagued by a lack of certainty. Sometimes, uh, you know, if you're, if you're not well, you go to the doctor and they don't know what's wrong. That's, for a lot of people, that gets worse than, than knowing. You know, what's, what's going on? What's, what's the issue? Not knowing what's in store can cause sleepless nights. It can cause deep anxiety. It can... Uh, cause foolish decisions. I mean, I, I have to say, most of the problems I feel myself and I feel with others is not really knowing what's going to happen. You know, I, I realized as I was looking at this this morning, it also can cause wise decisions. I think insurance is a wise decision. And you, you, why do you buy insurance? Because you, you're not sure what might happen. So it's not always a foolish decision. Sometimes the fact that you don't know what's going to happen is uh, it's good for you to be aware of. 
But life does not hold the type of guarantees that we would like. You know, if we did know the beginning from the end, if we knew it all, we might be less inclined to lean on Christ. Like if we knew every single moment, every single day, every, everything that was going to happen, we're like, all right, it's all spelled out. The script is written, and I know the script, therefore, I'm good. And of course, I think intimacy with Christ should be a primary target for the Christian. That's why this morning when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, I think, we prayed that He would give us our daily bread rather than our monthly bread or our yearly bread. Give me enough bread for the rest of my life. No, we pray daily. On the other hand, there are things that God would have us know. There are things that we should rely upon. There are things that God wants us to be certain of. Now, the same author, John, who wrote the Revelation, wrote this in one of his little short general epistles. He wrote that he wanted us to know that we belong to God. 1 John 5.13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. We should not be uncertain of that. We should have that blessed assurance of knowing that God is our Father and that we are His children and that life, eternal life, belongs to us. That should not be one of the things that you have to buy insurance for. The Bible, the Christian faith, is not fire insurance. Right? There's a certainty that God wants us to have. I think another example of Certainty is found in the following words, our opening verse. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. The certainty of God's word. God would not have us entirely unsure of things. He would have us know that his words are faithful and true. Over the years, I mean, many, many people have become members of our, of our church, and one of the first questions we ask of members who would take vows is, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? And as time goes on and everybody is unsure about, you know, the bastion of truth and what's right and wrong and where we go to find things, the more I find that vow precious. That God has, God has basically said, look at I know you're unsure of a lot of things, but there's a thing called the Word of God, and it's right there on your lap. I know it's a corny lyric, but I think it is profoundly true that I may not know what tomorrow holds, but I do know who holds tomorrow. And in a very intimate way, we are told that the same God who holds tomorrow holds the hands of those who are His. We read in Isaiah 41, 13, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. 
I mean, I, you know, I, I look at a verse like that and I think of all the implications. And part of me, you know, I mean, and this is a big mistake people make in terms of the sovereignty of God. And that is this idea that, well, if you're God, why would I be afraid at all? Why don't you just kind of make a nice, smooth path for me where I'm not afraid? But as I said, that type of world would not cause us to cling to Christ. You see, this, this hike that we're on, this journey, this, this walk, this war, whatever you want to call it, you know, from the cradle to the grave, has its share of, of, of rocks, has its share of, of holes. This, this journey God has us on does not mean we're not going to fall down and scrape our knees. We read in Psalm 37, 23, and 24, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord and he delights in his way. Well, that seems good enough, but then it goes on. Though he fall. Come on, what do you want to stop right there? Wait a minute. You're ordering my steps and now you're saying I'm going to fall. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. Why? For the Lord upholds him with his hand. You see, it's, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it's when we feel ourselves falling that we begin to feel the tightening of God's hand upon us. And not only that, when we begin to feel ourselves falling, we grab on a little tighter ourselves. Now, it's all a metaphor. I don't think God actually has a hand. But you understand what's being said here. He's, he's, he's watching over us. He holds us. I mean, and... In John 10, we have this idea that we are in his hands. He's got us in his grip. And sometimes we feel that way, and sometimes we don't feel that way. And sometimes we don't feel that way because of lethargy, because things are just kind of going swimmingly, and we don't feel like we need God. And sometimes he ordains scraped knees in order that we might tighten our grip upon him. And I would say that it's during those times, at least in my life, that I find a greater intimacy with God than I have when things are going maybe the way I want them to go. You know, we, uh, we can order our own sanctification, right? And we should. We should when I say that, I mean we should, we should pray. We should read the Bible. We should have fellowship. We should go to church. But sometimes God ordains something in our lives that makes us feel so uncomfortable that we find ourselves performing better than we would have otherwise performed if we were just left to our own will. My son and I played in a volleyball tournament yesterday, beach tournament. It was kind of funny. People saw me there, and they're like, oh, who are you watching? <laughs> I'm like, well, I am mostly doing that. If there's anything that I've not lost is my ability to be demanding of my partner. Go, you, take it, you know. And you, you, you all have seen me enough to know that I'm not naturally a quick, right? I saunter. The idea of me being quick is... But there, there was one time, I had to referee, so I'm refereeing, and these, this, these, this team is playing. And one of the guys on the team is just ripped. I mean, he's got this thing called abs. And he's got tattoos, and he's got, you know, he looked like an MMA guy, super quick, super athletic, very dangerous-looking guy. And his partner, you know, the other team spikes the ball, and his partner digs the ball up. 
And I'm looking at the ball, and I realize it's coming right for me. And then I, because I, I can still calculate, even though I can't move. I look at the ball, and I look at him, and I'm thinking, this guy is very capable of getting to this ball. And I'm right in his way. And I not only is he capable, I've, I watched him play enough to know that he is going to go for that ball. He's not going to look at me and go, oh. I moved quicker in that moment than I did in the entire tournament. Because God had ordained something unexpected. And sometimes our performance level goes up when God ordains that which is unexpected. When he's like, he rips us out of our routine and goes, look it, it's going to be a little different. And I need you to hold on tighter to me than you otherwise would. Well, that was the case for John's readers. Keeping in mind, you know, that this, like when you, you read your Bible, I think original audience is very important. You know, who, who received this letter and what was their condition? It's something we always have to think about when we read our Bibles. And the Revelation was written primarily to these seven churches on this Roman postal route in Asia Minor. And God had given them his word, which John has been writing, in which he says, these things will shortly take place. Now that's the precise phrase that the book opens with in Revelation 1.1. This is about to happen. Now, if you have followed this whole series, you recognize that I believe that the Revelation includes the entire course of human history, at least from the first to second advents of Christ. I think, I think all of history from the first coming to the second coming is included, especially when we look at the millennium, which I think is that period of time between the first and second advents. So I think the revelation does include all of human history from the time of Christ on. But I would argue that it primarily concerns itself with the, old, the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant and God's promise to protect his bride. That, that promise we see in Genesis 12, where God says, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. I think that is a promise to the church, and I think that we see one of the initial keepings of that promise right here in the Revelation. They're oppressed by Rome, they're oppressed by Jerusalem, and God is saying, you need to just stay the course, I will take care of your detractors. And I know that goes against the grain of what's popular today. And I'm not going to go into all the reasons why I think this is really talking about primarily what is happening in the first century, but I'll just read one passage to you. And for, for those of you who have been following along the whole time, that I think kind of yields the conclusion that this is something that was happening then, not something that was primarily the future to us. It was the future to them, but not the future to us. And we read about it in Matthew 16, 27 through, uh, and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Now, a lot of people will say that's the second coming. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And a lot of people say, well, that's the final judgment day. But then the next verse becomes highly problematic. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
And you got to wrestle with that. He's saying, I'm coming with my angels in judgment upon those people. And you know what? Some of you are going to still be alive when that happens. I'm going to let that just hang in the air a little bit. I want you to draw a conclusion on your own here. I want you to look at that and go, wow. How do I, how do I fashion that into my eschatology? How do I, how do I, how do I, how does this yield a, a, a futuristic view? Now, I do believe there will be a second coming, but not every coming of Christ is a second coming. Sometimes he comes in judgment, and I think that's what was happening in that first century, that he was coming in judgment. He was going to destroy the temple, and then we see Rome itself would eventually as an enemy of God's people, come to an end. Something, I think, if you read this book, and even the New Testament, in its most natural sense, something was about to happen. Something was going to shortly take place. The time is near. These are words from the book. Well, we see in the very next verse, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Well, there you have it again, right? Not only is the time near, but he's coming quickly. Now, some people are going to argue that that coming quickly means that once it begins, it's going to happen fast. They'll use, for example, there's a a passage in Acts 12, and I just want you to understand, because if you talk with your friends, you're going to find yourself in the minority currently in our culture if you're not a premillennial dispensationalist who believes in a secret rapture. And if you start saying, well, I think, I think the Revelation was primarily talking about things happening in the first century, you're going to find yourself in a pretty long argument. So let me help you. Because one of the things you're going to say is, when, he, when it says he's coming quickly, it means that when he comes, he's going to come real fast. And they'll cross-reference Acts 12.7, where the angel strikes Peter, and he tells Peter, get up quickly. All right, I remember reading that going, all right, I'm trying to hear both sides of the argument here. But does anybody think that when the angel struck Peter and he said, get up quickly, that Peter sat there for a long, long time and then got up quickly when he finally decided to get up? Because if an angel pokes me and says, get up quickly, you know when I'm getting up? Right now. So I don't think it works to say, well, once it begins, it's fast. I don't think the passage is going, wow, Jesus is really fast. I think the natural reading is something's about to happen. No. I think he is coming, and I think there are numerous cross-references within Revelation who are telling the readers something is about to happen. Now, the original readers of Revelation here are reminded of what they were told in the beginning. We see here in chapter 22 is kind of a restatement of what happened in what was said in chapter, 20, uh, chapter 1, blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you keep the words? What, what is, if somebody were to read the Revelation, if one of those, you know, those seven churches got it, and somebody, you know, they read it, you know, which they would do, they would read these books in church, and you walked out of church, if I have somebody to do this, and say, hey, what was the sermon about today? Because I know when I ask people that about a sermon I gave, they get real nervous. <laughs> They're like, 
Number one, was I even paying attention? And number two, did I actually get what was being said? It, but it's really me who's nervous when I ask the question, because I'm like, I may not have been very clear. But what would they have said in that first century, having read the Revelation and those seven churches? If somebody said, hey, what, what was that book about? I, th- I, I think the recurring theme that we see, and I put it in the notes at least eight times, but I think by implication more than that is the call to persevere, the call to overcome. That's the message. The message is something is about to happen. I know there are detractors in your life, and they're trying to get you to abandon your faith, but God is going to deal with them. You, you need to overcome. You need to persevere. You need to stay the course. That's the way we keep what is written in this book. We stay the course. Friends, so often the Revelation is read as if it's a novel. It's read as mere entertainment, you know, prophecy conferences, and you go there, and it's just, I mean, it's just turned into kind of a dog and pony show. And I remember when I was wrestling through this, because I wanted to read everybody I disagreed with, and there was one book I got a hold of. It said, the name of the book was Front Row Seats. And the subtitle was, As We Approach the Year 2000, You Have Front Row Seats to the Explosive Climax of History. Because the, the modern view of the Revelation is we're all raptured and we're going to come back and we're just going to watch it from the front row. Let me tell you, that is not the message. The message is not, boy, you guys are going to have, be able to, this is going to be a great movie for you. That's not what it means to keep. What does it mean to keep? We are actively involved in keeping the faith, staying the course. Verse 8, now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. You know, I debated how long I wanted to spend in that verse. I think it, may, it should be obvious to us that we should worship God and God alone. I mean, that, right, in the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus made that statement. That wasn't unclear. But you have to know this. The worship of someone or something can be a very subtle trip. You know, this word, worship, it just really means to bow. You know, it's where we, the Greek word is where we get the English word to prostrate, you know. And, um, and it's actually used, the same word is used in Revelation 3.9, where Jesus says people will bow before those who love him. So there's this idea. So we, we, see, we see a bowing before those who are not God. The fact that you're bowing doesn't necessarily mean you're assigning deity to the person that you're bowing before. But like I said, it's a subtle trip. A bow might be harmless. Like, a, like the first drink. Right? But that first drink could be a dangerous drink for some people. All this to say that worship may begin as something less than worship, and then it escalates. Then all of a sudden, you find yourself putting certain things or people in a place that they don't belong in your heart, in your life. They, they have kind of 
taken over. The series of events here communicated by this angel. You can imagine how this, what this must have been like for John, I guess, you know. You got this angel showing him and telling him these things. Compelled John to worship the messenger rather than the one who was actually sending the message. This happened to John. If it could happen to John, it could ha- I mean, John spent three years with Jesus. If it could happen to him, it could happen to us. We need to remember to keep everyone in their proper place. I have to say, you know, I find it disturbing when I hear that a church crumbles because of the moral failure of its pastor. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that pastor would have a lot to answer for. I'm not trying to dismiss. But if a church crumbled, then that was due to misplaced honor. You put that pastor where he never should have been. Maybe that's why God would have ordained the failure in the first place. Maybe it's God's way of saying, you're putting this person where they should not be. And I'm going to rough rough things up a little bit here for you. Talk about ordaining events that make us feel uncomfortable. Well, the angel wasn't having it, right? Verse 9, then he said to me, see that you do not do that. For I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. Now, there may be, in my notes I say there may be, there is a hierarchy in the church. There are hierarchies in, in life. There are leaders, there are teachers, there are elders, there are deacons and more. I mean, God has kind of ordered authority figures to govern. But in the church especially, but I would, say, I would argue in all of life, if all of their efforts, if the efforts of our church are not leading you to worship God, then our efforts are not of God. I mean, it's like we, we've got to continually be refocused. We've got to continually go... Is what we're doing here, leading the people who walk into this room to focus upon the person and work of Christ? Talk about, talk about if, you visit, if you're a visitor and you're visiting our church and say you come for three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, and somebody said, well, tell me about that church. What's it about? If somehow the person and work of Christ isn't in that answer, then we need to repent. I remember being encouraged this buddy of mine, I invited to church, and he finally showed up, and he came, you know, for a number of weeks. And we had lunch, and I'm like, so how's it going? How do you, how's, it, how's the experience of our church? He goes, okay, so what I'm, hearing you, what I'm hearing you say is, we're sinners, and we need a Savior? Yeah, pretty much. I have to say, I was encouraged. You know, he, he didn't say, well, you're teaching me how to be a better dad or a better husband or a better citizen or a better whatever. I think all that should be in there. But the heart of the ministry, and we need to continually make that effort to stay there 
are to go there or move in that direction. Let us remember at the heart of it all, right? Whether it's me, the other elders, the deacons, or any one of you who are seeking to minister to anybody else, it's somewhere in your mind, somewhere in, your, in our disposition, there needs to be this disposition of, I am just one beggar telling other beggars where to get a piece of bread. Another indicator of the time, this idea that the time is near, comes with the following verse and its reference to the book of which John just spoke. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. Well, again, right, the time is at hand is one way of kind of going, what does it mean the time is at hand? How are you reading the Bible in such a way that the time at hand is not going to happen for thousands of years? But the sealing up the words of the prophecy may not be as clear to you in terms of an argument for the nearness of the fulfillment of these prophecies. But in Daniel 12.4, we see similar language. Daniel is told to, quote, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And the reason Daniel is told that is because the prophecies of which Daniel spoke were not going to happen for another about 400 years. So Daniel's given this word, and, you know, during that era, it's kind of, he's talking about, the, you know, the stone that would come, right, and crush the image and all that. But that wasn't going to happen for 400 years. So Daniel's told, look, it, seal this up. It's not for this generation. It's, this can happen in 400 years. Let me tell you, it's very strenuous exegesis. In other words, what I mean by that, it's very difficult to read your Bible in any reasonable way when... You read that the sealing of this words of this prophecy is designed for those who are going to be living 20 centuries in the future. If Daniel is saying, if Daniel's told, seal this up because it's not going to happen in 400 years, but John is saying, don't seal it up, how do we then interpret that as to mean something that's going to happen 2,000 years later? He's like, going, no, don't put this on a shelf. This needs to be heard now. These people, we need to know something is about to happen and they need to be prepared for it. And then some people might ask, well, how does that then apply to us throughout the course of history of the church? Well, I could ask the same question about Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians. I could ask the same question about First and Second Corinthians. Those books were written to those churches. They weren't written to the branch of hope. So how, does, how do those... Letters apply to us. Well, here's how they apply to us. If we find ourselves in the same situation as those churches, then we need to respond the way the scriptures declare the response should be. And I dare say that throughout the course of history, the things that that those churches were going through are things that we still go through to this day. The temptation, for example, to view the head of state as the ultimate authority in our life. I think in Revelation, that's the beast. That's the Roman Empire. Caesar is Lord. They should not say Caesar is Lord. Christ is Lord. But we live in a world where magistrates and despots and tyrants rise up and they want to be Lord. So there is a continual application throughout the course of history of these very things. And I'll tell you, those people need to recognize that in the same way that Jesus defended his bride in the first century, he will continue to defend his bride throughout the course of history. And that his church, that kingdom, will endure to the end. 
And that, that's why we have these passages that say you need to overcome because the kingdom you're part of, that's the kingdom that endures to the end of history then extends itself into eternity. That's the eternal kingdom. As we read in Daniel, the kingdom that will have no end. Are you part of the kingdom that will have no end? Because the beginning of being part of that kingdom that has no end starts today for some of you. It begins when God opens your eyes and your hearts to know and believe in the king of that kingdom. Our passage ends with some really curious imperatives, and I probably spent the most time trying to figure these out. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He he who is holy, let him be holy still. Now, I don't think it's difficult the part that says if you're righteous or holy, stay the course. That makes sense. I think that's really the theme of the whole book, right? Stay the course. But what about the unjust, literally meaning the unrighteous, continuing in unrighteousness? You, you who are unrighteous, continue in your unrighteousness. You who are filthy, that basically means morally perverted, Continue in your moral perversion. In a way, passages like that bother me because I'm thinking, okay, this is going to take, this is going to take some time. Uh, in another way, I love passages like that because it makes me go, you know, there's something deeper here that I'm not getting. I need to, I need to really figure this out. When, I hope when you read your Bibles and you get to a problem passage, you don't view the problem as the Bible. I hope when you get to a problem passage, you realize the problem is you, not the Bible. You don't want to change the passage to kind of contour to your proclivities, you know. You want to go, wow, I'm really thinking incorrectly here. Now, there are a variety of answers, and I'm not going to turn this into a seminary class where, you know, I'm going to look at the strengths and weaknesses of all the potential answers. I'm going to tell you what I think carries the most weight in terms of an answer when we read those paratives. If you're filthy, be filthy. If you're immoral, be immoral. You see, because we learned earlier in Revelation that there is a great danger in being in this kind of tepid middle ground of faith. Right? It's one of the well-known verses in Revelation. Revelation 3.15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. You're just kind of like in the middle here. By the way, that's no new theme. That didn't just come up in the Revelation. We read in Jeremiah 44.25 of God telling the idolaters, so God is addressing idolaters who are performing vows and making offers, like offerings to the queen of heaven. He says in Jeremiah 44.25, confirm your vows and perform those works. You want to worship the queen of heaven? You want to worship somebody who's not God? Do it. We see this, again, this isn't anything new. We see in Ezekiel 20.39, As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve every one of you his idols, now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me. Go, do it. Even Jesus made me realize when 
He was being betrayed, right, by Judas. John 13, 27, now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him, talking about Judas, then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. You're going to do it? Do it. The people reading this, and right now as I'm reading it to you, we're not definitively on one side or the other yet, right? I mean, there's obviously the opportunity to go, I'm, I'm not going to be one of those. I'm going to be one of these. That, that, that's still there as long as, we, as long as we draw breath. We have the opportunity to go, no, I want to be on this side. When the Lord brings our life to an end, those, that decision-making opportunity is over. But those reading this, it wasn't over for them. Sometimes you need to choose a side. Boy, being in that middle ground, and we live in a culture right now where because we want to be you know, socially accepted, that middle ground is just the majority of our culture. Even within the church, we're trying to find middle ground. And that can be a very dangerous enterprise to find middle ground People need to know whose side they're on. I mean, I could say choose a side, but I guess my, my deeper question is, as you examine your own heart, whose side are you currently on? Because you're on one side or the other. You're either, you're either a child of God or you're a child of the prince of power of the air. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the Bible. And this isn't just me, and I'm, I don't want to sound like I'm being overly dramatic. You're a child of God or you're a child of the devil. You, one of those, too, are your master. I think what we read here is people who are kind of on the fence going, look, you need to recognize who you belong to, and you need to go ahead and pursue that in hopes. You know, when, when the Apostle Paul, excommunic, when we see an excommunication in the Bible, the Apostle Paul at least one time phrases it this way, I handed them over to Satan. Pretty dramatic statement. But it's like, no, you need to understand where you currently are. You need to understand your current condition. And the more you live it out, and when he's saying, go ahead, live out your current condition and see where that goes. And I, so I think there was a um, more, uh, I think there's a, a, a pedagogical or instructive element to this. I, I don't think it's just him saying like, God's sovereign decree is going to work itself out, so just keep doing it. I think there is this sense in which there is this choose this day whom you shall serve element to these words. And I think the idea here is live out, live out what your beliefs are and see where that leads you. I have a funeral that I'm going to later today of a teammate of mine in college, and I remember uh, that team I was on in college, there was a guy on the team who, a uh, great, great athlete, who was an atheist. And a number of years later, you know, after college, because I wasn't a pastor in college, a number of years later, he was getting married, he wanted to know if I would do his wedding. And I'll do weddings of two atheists, because I think they are equally yoked, you know. I'll do a wedding of two believers. I won't do a wedding of a believer and an unbeliever. 
So he asked me to do his wedding, and I sat down with him and his fiance, and we were starting to go over the uh, order, right, the ceremony. And I remember him kind of looking at the order, kind of going, well, when are you going to do the prayer? I'm like, well, Tom, I'm not going to do a prayer. Like, I, I told him, like, look, I've been praying for you, but we're not going to do a prayer in your wedding. It's like, why not? I go, well, Jesus isn't invited. You've made it clear that you don't believe in him. You've not received him. So why would you all of a sudden invite him to your wedding? Now, hopefully you understand kind of my goal here. My goal was you, you, you view this world in such a way where when a big event comes, you want Jesus there. And I appreciate that. But you need to understand that in your life, he's an acquaintance. You know, you know when you have a wedding and you invite people that you don't really know, right? Because they know somebody who knows somebody and you're like going, do we really want, I mean, I don't really know. That is not the way the kingdom of God works. Jesus is not going to be an acquaintance in your wedding. You know, we heard a sermon just recently on friendship. You know, and Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves, but friends. I mean, what a magnificent condescension, right, for Jesus to call us his friend. I'd like to point out, by the way, that the apostles never refer to Jesus that way, right? When Jesus said, you're my friends, Paul didn't begin his letters by saying, Paul, a friend of Jesus. Paul, a servant, a slave in chains, So, you know, we need to be careful that when God condescends in a loving, gracious way that we don't go, oh, Jesus is a friend. He's a friend next to you, which we used to sing when I was a youth pastor. But Jesus is no subtle friend. He may be a friend, but he's much more than a friend. He's the Savior. He is the Master. And he'll either be your savior or he will be your judge. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would all stay the course, that your spirit would be in us in such a way that we would persevere, persevere to the end, for this is the perseverance of the saints. And we do pray, Father, that in persevering, we recognize that if you didn't hold our hands, we would fall face first. That if you didn't hold us, that even though we scrape our knees, that our hearts would in fact perish. Let us appreciate what you have done and are doing even currently in our souls and even in our tough moments. Recognize that this is by your design that we might understand just how tight your grip is upon us. And that, Father, we might draw near to you through all of our trials. For we know that you will see us through. In his name we pray. Amen.